Good morning and welcome to episode 837 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the Play Index at baseballreference.com. I'm Sam Miller, along with Ben Lindbergh of 538. Hey, Ben. Hello. In the second half of the show, Jeff will be talking to Pat Lackey of Where Have You Gone, Andy Van Slyke. In the meantime, we will be talking to the author of this year's Pirates annual essay, Travis Sawchick. Travis is uh, the author of Big Data Baseball, the uh, definitive look at what the Pirates do and really what a uh, modern baseball team does in this particular era. Hey, Travis. Hey, guys. Welcome to the, uh, the author club. I'll get you a jacket. You get a really <laughs> cool jacket. Is it a book jacket? Is it a dust jacket? Are there blurbs <laughs> on the back of the jacket? You got a little a funny looking uh, headshot of yourself on the jacket on the inside. <laughs> Congratulations. Really looking forward to it. <laughs> Thank you. So the Pirates, they don't quite get as much attention as the Royals do for this, but they are uh, the Pakota Busters of the National League. I think they have the uh, second highest deviation from their projected wins over the past three years. They've been consistently higher. And Pakota is, uh, you know, sort of eh, kind of gently positive toward them. Uh, this year, but they don't see them, for instance, matching the high 90s win total of last year. And I'm just curious, as a person who uh, knows very deeply what the Pirates do, if you were in control of Pakoda, and not really focusing on this year, this year's projection, but just in general, would you put your thumb on the scale a little bit? Would you simply add a couple wins because of the team they are and, and what they've done? And it's not just Pakoda. I think other projection systems have been a little light on the Pirates over the last few years. And why is that? Is there something to, to put uh, a finger on it? I think there is. I, I think the Pirates really do a good job of extracting value, particularly from pitchers with the coaching staff they have in place. Ray Search gets a lot of credit from Benedict when he was here. He's done a good job of making mechanical tweaks, uh, changing pitch mix, and they've, they've got more value out of pitchers than other clubs. And you add in the defensive plan, everyone's shifting now. The Pirates were shifting a little earlier than most clubs. That helped. The ground ball philosophy, they've won baseball and ground ball rate three straight years. I think all those things help in the, from the run prevention side. And in player health, Ben's written about this. I think in 2014, the Pirates lost a few stays of the DL. Last year, according to Man Games Loft.com, the Pirates lost the fewest amount of wins above replacement to the disabled list. And uh, the Pirates are really focused on this area of injury prevention and maximizing player efficiency. They've studied the Golden State Warriors and their rest programs and patterns. They even hired Chris Johnson, a former Golden State Warriors player performance support staff guy. So yeah, the Pirates are really interested in getting more value out of players than what projections think they will extract. And I, I think there's something to it. I think that plays a significant role in, in why they've beaten projections. And will continue to the degree it has i am not sure but i think that explains part of it so you're confident that the injury or, or fatigue efforts have worked it's always sort of hard to to say whether it worked because it could be luck it could be other factors and lots of other teams have talked about doing things with injuries the cardinals are talking about it now and the dodgers have talked about doing it and the pirates have 
talked about it too, but maybe have been more proactive than other teams. So are you confident in just looking at the DL results and the you know money lost to injured players results and saying that this has really paid off for the Pirates in a big way? I don't have complete confidence that explains everything. And it's really hard to prevent an injury, a broken bone, or what happened to Jungle Gong, a slide that takes out a knee ligament and breaks. You can't prevent those injuries. But I do think there's something, I know the Pirates believe they can reduce muscle strains and fatigue-related injuries. I don't have as much confidence about player rest carrying over from the NBA to baseball. I'm not sure. They're much different animals, obviously. But I think it explains a small portion. And there's a lot of smart people in the industry that I, I think believe teams can trim, at least they can reduce injuries to some level, even if it's just a few percentage points. There, you know, There's millions of dollars of value, performance value there, and I ex- explain some of it. I am not a doctor. I am not a doctor. I, I don't have 100% confidence that explains why they're beating projections, but I do think it plays a role. I think smart training staffs and support staffs, they can make a difference. I thought one of the interesting uh, parts of your essay, which sort of looks at all the reasons uh, for and against the Pirates uh, kind of extending this uh, semi-golden age of theirs. You mentioned the injuries, and we tend to think of the injuries, the lack of injuries as being a good indicator that they've demonstrated this ability to keep their players healthy. And But you kind of also flip that and point out that they've been so far on the extreme and one of their division rivals, the Cardinals, was so far on the other s- extreme that even if you think that they're better than the Cardinals at preventing injuries, the gap is big enough that there could still be significant regression. And what we you know saw last year could tighten up a lot. And in fact, the Pirates, while better at this, might still end up you know having a kind of comparably injured year this year just by natural forces alone. Right, yeah. I mean, they've also been lucky in regard to injury. They've been fortunate. They haven't they haven't had a lot of season to stabilizing type injuries to star play. They've kept their star players in the healthy on the field and healthy for the most part. Andrew McCutcheon outside of his knee issue which he played through has been healthy during this run for the most part. Garrett Cole stayed healthy last year, which was reached two hundred innings for the first time, which was a big deal after having some issues in twenty fourteen. So they have to keep Small market teams have to keep their star players healthy, uh, and the Pirates have been fortunate in that regard. But yeah, they're at, at some point they're going to lose a significant player to a significant injury that there is no way to prevent, and they've been very fortunate in that regard. And there's going to be some regression there at some point. They can't afford luxury regression this year with what the Cubs are doing and what the Cardinals are and will seemingly be forever. So yeah, I think it is an area of concern that hey, it's really hard to keep this track record of health up and. To Ben's point, we we really don't know how sustainable injury prevention is or or how luck-dependent it is. Yeah, it really reminds you how small the margin of error is because the Pirates have done everything right. They've been very successful over the past few years. All they really have to show for it, at least, you know, playoff-wise, and you could argue, of course, that the regular season is more of a reflection of the job you did than the playoffs, but of course they just have that one wildcard win to show for it and then the depressing losses and they've run into aces both of those times. They've just had bad bad timing, bad matchups, bad luck in that respect. And the division they're in is also sort of working against them. They were outspent by the Cubs and the Cardinals by a lot this year. We just did the Cardinals preview yesterday. 
So that shows you how close Pakoda thinks it is between those two teams. And of course, the Cubs are probably the best team in baseball. So can the Pirates ever expand their payroll? You know, I think they're what, 23rd out of 30 teams now, even after this run of success and improved ratings and improved attendance. So is there any way for them to get to the next tier of payroll? Yeah, a lot of people in Pittsburgh are wondering that especially since uh, another small market, similar-sized market uh, in Kansas City, spent a lot more money than the Pirates this, this offseason. And a lot of folks are wondering what Bob Nutting and the Pirates' ownership group is, is doing payroll. You know, what What is their profit margin? And uh, Neil Huntington did not have a lot of money to work with this offseason. And it's if they want to sustain success and compete with the Cubs, you have to think they have to increase payroll significantly. At some point, uh, they do have... Uh, their local TV deal is coming up after the 2018 season, and it's reportedly one of the the least lucrative deals in the sport. So the TV golden age is still going on, and a lot of people stop cutting the cord. To the degree they are, maybe there's significant growth there with a new regional deal. Maybe they can keep inching ticket prices up, which are their ticket price. The cost of four people going to a Pirates game is still really low, and it's far below the Royals. The Pirates do not control parking, so they have some significant local revenue issues to deal with. But there's still uh, the revenue sharing, the, the digital dollars from MLB Sam, the national TV deals are all, all growing. So there's still a lot of money to play with, and uh, people are curious when and if Pirates ownership will make a bigger commitment. And that would seem to be the time uh, when the Cubs are spending like they're spending. The NL Central is a really tough neighborhood. The plan will always be to draft and develop players well in Pittsburgh, but you can't fill every hole internally. You know, Huntington knows that, and eventually you have to think you have to, you have to spend a little bit more like a mid-market team and not in the bottom quartile of the sport. Speaking of the uh, the wild card game, I'm first of all I'm curious. I mean, the Pirates would have they had home field in all three of those wild card games, so in the old format they would have been in a division series all three times. So I'm, the first question is, I'm curious how bitter they are that the format changed just before they hit this. But I also want to raise this and ask both of you whether you think there's anything significant to it. I'm looking at the four years of the wild card game, and so uh, in those four years there have been 16 teams in the wild card game and eight of those 16 are i would say squarely small market teams the a's the indians the pirates uh the reds and the royals make up eight of those 16 if you look at the division winners in those same four years there are 24 and only four of those 24 were were small market teams the rest were either mid or really big market teams so you have basically one in six division winners small market versus one in two wild card winners small market do you think that this is just noise, just a fluke, random chance? Or do you think there is actually something unexpectedly anti-small market about having this two wild card format where maybe a small market team can compete, it gives them entry, but they're much less likely to win the ninety, you know, 97 games required to win a division outright? Yeah, I asked Neil Huntington about this uh, going into the wild card game last year. And he, he said one vote you got regrets most of all as an executive is voting to expand the wildcard format to include an extra wildcard, because obviously that has worked against the Pirates. But I think he voted for it just to give the Pirates another, and all small small markets another access, another access point, another berth into the, to the postseason field, because it's really 
large market teams, typically win the divisions, as you point out. And I think Neil's thought was, a lot of very small market clubs thought was, hey, let's have more chairs at the postseason table, give ourselves a better chance. But unfortunately, if you're that top wild card and you're in a Pirates position, you, you're not rewarded for a 98-win season. It can all come crashing down in a made-for-TV kind of event in that wild card game. So it's an inherently unfair system. But I think the Pirates logically actually voted for it for, uh, for reasons based in, in logic and what they thought was their best chance to, to reach a postseason consistently. So it's a, it's a tricky question, and uh, it'll be interesting to see if those trends continue as the two wildcard format continues on. I think what the Pirates would like to see is that wildcard round expanded to not a best two out of three. Maybe I think in Korea they have a system where if you're the top wildcard, you have to be beaten twice, and you only need to beat the second wild card once in sort of a, a two-game series type uh, situation. So maybe there's some hybrid solution to making the system a little more fair. Uh, I think the Pirates are definitely interested in looking at uh, after the last two seasons. Do you see the team's budget approach this offseason as purely a reflection of their financial limitations, or is there a way to spin it as sort of taking advantage of the assets that they do have, like first base, you know, maybe they went a little bit budget with guys like John Jaso and Mike Morse and Jason Rogers, but they do have Josh Bell, who's coming off a really nice season at first base in AAA last year, or in the rotation, they replaced AJ Burnett with John Neese, and then they're counting on guys like Vogelsong and Jeff Locke, but of course they have Glasnow and Tyone coming, and they also have this seemingly proven record of being able to rehabilitate pitchers. So do you think that they're taking advantage of their strengths or is that too positive a way to, to look at it? <laughs> yeah, it's probably a little bit of each. Uh, first base, they really like John Jay. So they think if you look at since 2013, if you look at his on base, weighted runs created, walk rate, I mean, he's arguably, a, when he's healthy, he's a top 30, top 40 hitter in baseball. He's uh, against right-handed pitching. So they've liked him for four years. They've they tried to acquire him before. They did not want to block Josh Bell of a, a long-term kind of contract either, and they probably can't really afford that kind of first baseman anyway. So Jay So they like him, and he's the kind of cheap, short-term fix they were looking for. Uh, I think the rotation is maybe more financially motivated. The starting pitching market kind of blew up on them this offseason. They drafted so many high school, projectable high school arms because they don't believe they can afford top of the rotation arms in the free agent market. So they've had to trust their ability to find reclamation projects. And they invested more in the bullpen this year with Acasio, Feliz, Payne, Mark Melanson, nearly $10 million arbitration, setting a high bar for him in the trade market that wasn't met. So they've shifted resources into the bullpen, and I think they're trying to take advantage of that trend where relievers throw more and more innings, starters are throwing fewer innings. I think they're they're sort of wanting to build a super pen, try to be like the Royals in the end game because they, they believe they cannot play in that free agent starting pitching market. So I think it's a little bit of both. They don't want to block prospects either, but they, they're certainly trying to work around strengths given the financial limitations they have to work with. And you've written about Andrew McCutcheon and the possibility of an extension for him. Obviously, Pirates fans are very interested in whether he will be a career Pirate or not. But if we've learned anything about extensions, it seems like you know one thing might be that it's risky or maybe unnecessary to sign players years in advance unless you're really getting a discount, unless it's a guy who's very early in his career, not 
proven yet, you know, not a former MVP who's sort of at the peak of his powers. So with McCutcheon under team control for three more years, is there really any point to exploring this for the Pirates right now? Or, or, you know, would they just be better off sort of waiting until he's in his early 30s to think about making a a longer commitment? Yeah, I think they, I think it's very unlikely Andrew McCutcheon will be here beyond 2018, which is the club option, the final year of team control in his current contract. And the Pirates are very much aware of aging curves, and they're very much aware of the contracts you mentioned. I think there's been $1,800 million-plus extensions to players given on top of extensions they signed or players that were beyond pre-arbitration. And I think 14 of those contracts were either clear losses for clubs or they look like they're going to be losses for clubs, like the Tulitsky deal, the Ryan Howard deal, deals of that nature. So the Pirates are very aware of these lucrative second contracts have aging curves. And for a team that has to be so efficient with every dollar it spends, a team that can't just spend money based on nostalgia and that sort of thing, I think it's unlikely to touch in the receives a contract beyond this current one, unless it was so club-friendly, it made sense. And I don't think McCutcheon's going to double up there. So we're probably looking at Charlie Marte in center field in 2019 and maybe Austin Meadows left field. And I know Pirates fans, I don't want to hear that. There is, I think there is something to be said for an iconic player beginning and ending a career. I think there is some organizational, institutional value there. But I don't think the Pirates believe it outweighs the potential loss on a $100 million-plus contract going south on a club. So uh, who knows what compensation will look like for free agents lost with the new CBA, but McCutcheon's probably going to walk or be traded before it's a contract extension. And speaking of contracts for beloved homegrown players, do you think there are any long-term ramifications that come from the, the Garrett Cole contract kerfluffle or I mean, it was hard for me to tell whether he was really upset with the Pirates or more just upset with the way players are paid in baseball currently. So I don't know whether he holds that against the team or whether it's fair to hold it against the team. Do you think that there's really any impact to that down the line or years away from deciding what to do with him? Is this just something that sort of fades into the background eventually? I don't think it would preclude a deal happening if there was common ground on both sides to to work towards one. And in 2008, Cole Hamill's was in a similar situation his final year of pre-arb status with the Phillies, and he was signed to a near-league minimum contract, and he called it a low blow after a fantastic season. And 10 months later, he signed a three-year deal with Bada's arbitration. So if the Pirates are willing to offer a contract to Gary Cole and his agent Scott Boris find appealing, then you know, I'm sure they can get over this and, and work towards that. And maybe there would be uh, some common ground on both sides and the Pirates wanting to control costs and Garrett Cole not wanting to worry about injury and wanting to get some financial security and a deal that would buy out arbitration. But I think it's unlikely he get forfeits any free agency years in the contract. So, yeah, I don't think any goodwill was built in this process. But I also think Cole, who's now the, players, the Pirates' union rep, probably more upset at the system, uh, like a Jacob DeGrom, feels it's unfair that it's uh, almost more seniority-based and merit-based at times. And it'll be interesting if there's more young voices as union reps and if the average salary continues to outweigh pre-arb salaries in a way that seems unfair when the game is trending younger, when teams are smarter about delaying service time and controlling peak years. 
be interesting to see what happens in, in future agreements and things that apply to service time. So uh, I think more than anything, Cole is upset with the system. And this is also a guy who is a Super 2 victim, too. So I, I think he's eager to get into arbitration and free agency and keep pitching well. Ben and I talked this week about the Pirates overperforming pitchers and who gets credit for that. And uh, people have heard it. I'm not going to rehash that, but presuming that the premise is true, that the Pirates actually do uh, have some knack for turning, uh, you know, not great pitchers into better pitchers. I'm wondering if there is a type of pitcher that they target or who fits into the system better. I guess another way of saying that is there is there something that John Neese and Neftali Feliz have in common that would make them particularly attractive to Searage and or the Pirates system as a whole? Good question. And I think Feliz fits the model more than Neese. The Pirates have, every under Huntington in this front office group, the Pirates' team velocity, fastball velocity, has increased. And they've consciously targeted velocity, believing that it reduces uh, or increases margin for error for pitchers and reduces reaction time for hitters. And that there's an inherent advantage in that. And each year it's crept up to where they've been, but they were near or the top of baseball and fastball velocity last year. And Fleas is another big arm that fits that profile. Acasio fits that profile another edition. Last year it was Caminero. So they like these high-velocity guys who might have a control issue they feel they can iron out or mitigate to a degree. And they've, you know, Lirianos fit this in the past. Edison Volquez fit this in the past. Nice does not fit this profile as much. And he was acquired in the new Walker trade, and I don't think the market is great for Walker. So I think Nice is more a product of here's the best available return we can can get for a player we're trying to shop. So, yeah, I think their preferred model is Velocity, a guy who has a control flaw that they believe Searage and formerly Jim Benedict could iron out to a degree. And then they put him in a par- They put him in a very pitcher-friendly park. PNC Park suppresses right-handed power more than any NL park, just according to the Bill James handbook. And, you know, we were well aware of the pitch training catchers that they've they're on parade from the Yankees to Pittsburgh every year, and they've helped too. So it's not just one thing. It's a, a cumulative effect. A lot goes into it, but I think the common thread in most of these guys picked up is fastball and also some swing. I think they like the swinging strike rate. Does the guy have a pitch and this is bats? And they believe, I think, they can fix control more than they can fix velocity or the ability to, to throw a slider that's going to miss a bat. All right, so we will end with two predictions. First, what date does Gong play his first game for the Pirates in 2016? And then second, the, the same prediction we ask all of our guests for, how many games will this team win in 2016? Okay, hot seat time. <laughs> yep. And I'm, I'm down here at Bradenton today. We just got a health update on Gong. He is going to be in cleats on the infield dirt for the first time. He's still, he'll be limited to linear movement, but he is making progress and the timetables move from May to April. So I'm going to say April 12th, and we'll see how that works out. But I do think he'll be ready at some point, middle of April or a little before. Team wins, I I think the Pirates are due for some regression. They're 98 wins. That's tough for anyone to repeat. I'm going to say they're an 86-win team in 2016, and they're going to be in that hunt for, for a dreaded wild card uh, game appearance again. I, just, I don't think they're going to be catching the Cubs, and I think we're going to see a little regression uh, the projection systems will get some <laughs> they'll feel justified this year as the Pirates right inch a little closer to, to where they've seen them the last few years. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, Travis. 
Hey, thanks for having me, guys. You can read Travis at the Pittsburgh Tribune Review. You can buy his book, Big Data Baseball, and you can find him on Twitter at Sachik underscore Trib. Stay tuned after the break to hear Jeff Paternostro talk to Pat Lackey. The second half of our 2016 Pirates preview here on Effectively Wild. Joining me now is Pat Lackey, the man behind Where Have You Gone, Andy Van Slyke. Pat, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Jeff. The Pirates have made the playoffs the last two seasons. Is a bizarre statement to start off a Pirates season preview, but it is factually accurate. I checked. What is the mood like among Pirates fans headed into 2016? Is it still surprise? Is there still the sense that you're playing with house money or have things started to change? Yeah, you know, I, I think the best way to describe it would be probably cautious optimism. You know, everybody knows the division that they're in. Obviously, we saw it last year. You know, the Pirates won 98 games last year and were maybe the best Pirate team on the field since the 79 World Series team. They still ended up in the wild card game and they lost to the Cubs. And the Cubs got much better this winter and the Pirates didn't necessarily do a whole lot. But at the same time, you know, they do have the same core of that 98 win team back. And so it's hard to be negative about them, even though losing the wild card game twice in a row also will put a damper on pretty much anybody's outlook, I think. As you mentioned, the Pirates were fairly quiet in the previous offseason. Now, they didn't lose any key cogs like the Cardinals, though I suppose we could debate Neil Walker on that point, but they didn't load up like the Cubs. So is this a potentially better team than the 2015 version, either through improvements of the players already on the roster or new prospects? Or is Pittsburgh's front office just trying to stay at the same level, which, granted, was 98 wins? You know, it's hard to say that you could be a whole lot better than 98 wins. Um, You know, certainly there's a lot of room for growth internally. Gregory Polanco played a lot better in the second half of the season. You know, they're going to remove Pedro Alvarez, who was spectacularly awful as a defensive first baseman and wasn't actually that great of a hitter. And, you know, Tyler Glasnow and Josh Bell should both be up at some point during the season. And so, you know, I think they're they're leaning a little bit on, a little bit more on internal improvement than a team in their situation should, or maybe more than the fans would like at this point. But, you know, there, there certainly is a chance that they will be every bit as good in 2016 if the right players, you know, move in the right direction. So Pirates didn't fill out their roster with veterans, but they do have some talent on the farm. You've mentioned a few of the names already. And especially in the rotation, which as of right now might have John Neese, Jeff Locke, and Ryan Vogelsong in it. So Tyler Glasnow, Jamison Tyone, health permitting, of course, in that last case. How soon do you think Pirates fans might be able to see them at the major league level? I would say that Tyone, or sorry, that Glasnow should be up at some point by midseason, kind of on you know the Garrett Cole schedule. I was lucky enough to see Glasnow in person last year. I, I live in Durham, North Carolina, and so Indianapolis came through to play the Bulls, and he certainly looked a lot rawer in person than his huge minor league strikeout numbers might indicate. And he was not very good at holding runners on base. Uh, he kind of came a little bit unraveled when runners were stealing bases all over him, but at the same time, it was maybe his second start at AAA, and this stuff is almost impossible to miss. And so assuming he can get those rough edges ironed out, 
you know, I, I, I would think that a good month or two at Indianapolis and enough games to uh, set the service clock and the Super 2 clock in the right direction, I, I would assume that he could potentially be up as early as, you know, mid-June. Tyon is tough to say, you know, he didn't have an arm injury last year. He had a groin injury. And at the same time, you know, the fact remains he hasn't really even pitched a minor league inning in the last two seasons. And so I, I just, I don't know what the recovery timeline looks like for that. I assume that the Pirates, you know, must have an internal pitch count for him over the course of the season. But I would assume they'll bring him along a little bit slowly during the year. And that, you know, you may not see him until later in the season, if only, you know, because he's pitched so little the last couple of years. Uh, Nick Kingham is another guy that might be up. You know, he had Tommy John surgery last year, but he should be back relatively early in the season. And the same thing kind of goes for him. It just depends on how that recovery is going to go, you know, before you would see him with the Pirates. But at some point, I would guess, you know, mid-summer would, would be a decent guess for him. Meanwhile, at first base, Pedro Alvarez is out. Some combination of Mike Morse and John Jasso is in. However, how soon could Josh Bell overtake them? You know, I, I would assume that Bell is on a similar schedule to to Glasnow in that, you know, the, the Pirates always have service time issues in mind. It seems like a few teams have been particularly mindful of them uh, with their contracts this offseason, knowing that the CBA is coming up after the season ends. Uh, he also has not played a whole lot. You know, he, he played with Indianapolis and in AAA towards the end of the year. He hit the ball very well. Neil Huntington spoke really highly of him in the offseason. And, and so I would assume that you know, if everything goes well, that he'll be up at some point in June would be my best guess. So sticking with the Major League roster and the infield for a minute, Neil Walker was dealt to the Mets for John Neese this past offseason, moving Josh Harrison to second base. How's that going to work? You know, I, I don't know that it's as big of a downgrade as a lot of people, particularly Pirate fans, think that it is. You know, Walker is from Pittsburgh and was a bit of a hometown favorite because he was from Pittsburgh, understandably. But, you know, his, his strikeouts were up pretty significantly last year. He lost a bit of power from 2014. His defense is not anything necessarily to write home about. You know, his range at second base is pretty poor. And, and Harrison didn't have as good of a year in 2015 as he did in 2014, but he wasn't that much worse than Walker necessarily. And so I, I, don't, think that it's necess- I don't think that it's a huge trade in a negative direction for the Pirates. It, you know, if Harrison plays a little more regularly. He dealt with injuries last year, and he was kind of the odd man out at several different points, which makes it a little bit harder to kind of get going for a guy if he's coming off the bench more regularly. And, you know, assuming that if Walker is kind of trending towards the downside of his career, I I would say that there's a decent chance that the Pirates won't lose a whole lot, given that even if Walker does hit a little bit better, there's a good chance that Harrison will be stronger defensively at second. So I I guess it's safe to say one of the over- arcing theme so far of this interview is the Pirates' mindfulness of service time and salary. So is there anything more to the Garrett Cole kerfluffle over his 2016 salary than just he's not happy with it, but this is the way it goes? That's what it seems like to me. You know, I've seen in the week or so since this all flared up, uh, I think Tim Williams at Pirates Prospects was pointing out examples on Twitter, but you know, the, the Rays had a few players that barely got pay raises or maybe even took pay cuts. And I think there was a similar thing with Jacob deGrom in New York. And so my hunch is that the best guess is that it might have something to do with the CBA being renegotiated, that teams are being just a little bit more careful with those guys. 
you know, my other guess with the Pirates is that maybe they're being a little more careful with Cole to not set any precedents when they have to deal with Scott Boris and arbitration down the road. Obviously, Cole is unhappy. You know, I, I think that there's certainly his right to be given the way that he pitched last year, but I, I don't think that there's going to be a whole lot about this that anybody's going to remember even a month from now. So behind Garrett Cole in that rotation, of course, is Francisco Liriano. And then a bunch of guys I imagine the Pirates are counting on Ray Searage to work his magic with. Um, John Neese, Ryan Vogelsong, Corey Lubke, Neftali Feliz in the bullpen. So uh, you've watched Searage in action and the Pirates over the last few years. Which one of these guys magically puts up a sub-3 ERA this year? It seems like Neese is the best bet, if only because you know the Pirates certainly went out and got him. You know, they, they had a few teams that seemed interested in Neil Walker, and Nice was the, the trade that they decided to make. I, I think that maybe the place where they're going to have luck with somebody like Nice or you know, maybe even somebody like Jeff Locke or Vogelsong over a short period of time is where they had a lot of luck with Jay Happ last year was, you know, if you look at Happ put up those incredible numbers with the Pirates and was paid an obscene amount of money in the offseason, and part of the reason I think he did so well with the Pirates is the Pirates were very quick to pull him out of the game once he got third time through the lineup. And so a lot of Hap's excellent starts were, you know, five innings, five and two-thirds innings, six, six and a third. He didn't pitch deep into a lot of games. And the Pirates were able to do that because they picked up Joe Blanton and uh, Joaquin Soria at the trade deadline. And, and they certainly focused a bit on strengthening that bullpen. They picked up Juan Nicasio this year. They have Neftali Feliz, whose velocity seemed like it sort of started to come back towards the end of the year last year. I think that makes him a really good race steerage pro- project. And, and so I think that probably the plan with the back two-thirds or the back 60% or maybe 40% of that rotation, looking at Nice and Vogelsong and Locke, is to have those guys get through the lineup twice and get into the fifth inning and then get out of the game before things get out of hand. You know, I think the Pirates did a pretty good job of that last year with Hap, who pitched well, and even Locke and Morton, who pitched pretty terribly down the stretch, Locke and Charlie Morton. The Pirates did a good job of getting them out of the games before the games got out of hand. And I think they actually won something like the last seven no decisions that Charlie Morton and Jeff Locke pitched. And I think a lot of that is attributable to the bullpen and to a quick hook. And my guess is, you know, that's sort of what they're looking at this year, at least until it's time, you know, for guys like Glasnow and Kingham to come up and take the spots from guys like Vogelsong and Locke in the rotation. I will say as someone that's watched a lot of John Neese over the last seven years, getting him out at the first sign of trouble is probably a good strategy. (laughs) So we are overly sartorially concerned, at least in my segments for this, and these have already come up, but how excited are you about the We Are Family uniforms coming back this year? You know, I would have told you up until the moment that the picture of Andrew McCutcheon in those uniforms with the pillbox cap showed up on Twitter, that I really loved those 1971 uniforms they wore with the mustard hats and kind of the piping and the pullover jerseys. I thought those looked really nice every Sunday, and they wore the 70s-style stirrups. And then the second that you see Andrew McCutcheon wearing the bright gold jersey and the black pants and the pillbox cap and you know, you start thinking about Stargell Stars in 2016, and it's hard to be anything other than excited, I think. Those are maybe the most iconic pirate uniforms, aside from those home whites that really haven't changed a whole lot in the last 60 years. But I, I think it'll be a lot of fun to finally see those on the field a little bit more regularly this year. We'll let you go with this. For those of our listeners that might not be as familiar with the Pirates as you are, 
Who's a guy under the radar on the 2016 roster that might have a big impact on the team this year? I think that it may be something that wasn't on the roster last year, but I think that John Jaso was a relatively solid pickup if he can stay healthy for them. It seems to me that, you know, in getting rid of Neil Walker and getting rid of Pedro Alvarez, they've sort of shifted the focus of the offense a little bit away from guys with more power, but who struck out a ton towards players that are going to put the ball and play more. And, you know, I, I think that Jaso is, his health is obviously a little bit of a question mark. He's missed a lot of time with concussions uh, the, the last few years, but he hit really well in the second half after he came back last year, and he's going to pick up the big end of that first base platoon with Mike Morris, at least until Josh Bell is called up. And it seems to me like he's really a good fit for what the Pirates are trying to do, you know, with their infield and with the offense in general this year. And first base is a position that the Pirates have not had a whole lot of luck with in the last few years. You know, they've cycled through Garrett Jones and Gabby Sanchez and Ike Davis and Pedro Alvarez. And, you know, Mike Morris was okay in sort of a short stretch at the end of the year last year. But I, I think that Jaso, that was one of my favorite pickups of theirs of the offseason. And I'm relatively optimistic that he's going to well, saying he would be the most productive pirate first baseman of the last five years. Maybe it wouldn't be a compliment necessarily, but I, I do think that he's a good fit for them and somebody that can make more of a difference. Uh, somebody that was on the team, you know, Francisco Cervelli had a great year last year. He's a great defensive catcher. He stayed healthy. He hit almost as well as Russell Martin did in, in his first year with the Pirates. He was, you know, losing Russell Martin was something the Pirates everybody thought would really be a huge blow to them. And Cervelli kind of slid right in and they, they barely missed him at all last year. And so I guess those are two, two guys that don't necessarily jump off the page on a team with Andrew McCutcheon and Starling Marte and, you know, Jung Ho Gong and, and Garrett Cole. But, you know, Cervelli was a big addition last year. And I kind of feel like Jaso could be the same sort of player for them this year. Pat Lackey, you can read his stuff at Where Have You Gone, Andy Van Slyke and follow him on Twitter at YGavs. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thanks for having me, Jeff. All right, that's it for our Pirates preview. Thank you to Travis and Pat for coming on. You can send us emails for next week's listener email show at podcastandbaseballperspectus.com. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. You can buy our book, which Travis alluded to earlier in the episode. It's called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. It comes out on May 3rd, and it's the story of how Sam and I ran the Sonoma Stompers, an independent league baseball team, last summer. You can pre-order it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or anywhere else and potentially get it a little bit ahead of the actual publication date. I think you're, you're getting a decent amount of book for your buck, I would say. It's not an inexpensive book, but it's 368 pages and, and there's no index padding that. That is all book. doesn't even include the photo insert in the middle. So you'll get some hours out of this thing. It's probably not a one-sitting story. You can rate and review and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, and you can also support our sponsor, The Play Index, by going to baseballreference.com using the coupon code BP and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. That's it for us this week. Have a wonderful weekend. We will be back with the Mariners preview on Monday. Monday.